I'm here today with Jamar Tisby. Jamar is president of the Witness, a Black Christian Collective, where he writes about race, religion, politics, and culture. Jamar's most recent book is How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And in January, he will release a companion book called How to Fight Racism, Young Reader's Edition, A Guide for Standing Up for Racial Justice. And there it is. <laughs> that book is for ages 8 through 12. Jamar is also co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast, and his writing has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and CNN. He's studying for a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi with a focus on race, religion, and social movements in the 20th century. And you can learn more about Jamar at jamartisby.com. So Jamar, welcome back, and uh, so good to have you uh, join us again. And I'm happy to report that the studying for a PhD has transitioned to earned the PhD. Oh, really? Oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Thank you. It's a, just a, just been a couple of months as we record this. So defended the dissertation, uh, jumped through all the hoops and, and finally have those letters behind my name. Wow. Well, that's got to be um, quite a great feeling to have that title. Wow. Let, let me tell you, it, it's five years for the PhD. Then I was in uh, grad school, getting a master's degree before that. So nine of the last 10 years, I've been a student and uh, I'm happy to be done with that. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, journey, but <laughs> I'm glad it's over. And that was in parallel with all the other things you were doing, too. So Exactly. Yes. Yes. Writing two books, leading a nonprofit, traveling and speaking and all of that fun stuff. So it has been a hustle uh, to, to get this far, but I'm glad, glad we did it. Well, um, besides your books, I mean, can we talk a little bit about The Witness? Because, I mean, your work there has been so important. And, uh, you know, I've always been impressed with what you've done there. Thanks, Brian. And uh, sorry if I'm on a soapbox about this, but it's been on my mind a lot lately. Because, as, 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 as you well know, we're, we're in the midst of what I would call a, a realignment of the U.S. church, in, in, in particular within white evangelical circles as more and more people finally start to recognize um, the poison pill that's been in white evangelicalism depends on how far back you want to go. But in its modern iteration, at least until from the late 1970s and this rise of the religious right. Um, and so there's been a bevy of books and scholarships, scholarship reexamining white evangelicalism. I can think of Kristen Cobes Dumais' book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. I can think of Beth Allison Barr's book, uh, The Making of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I can think of uh, Robert P. Jones' book, White Too Long. Yeah. And there's many, many, many others. Yeah, those uh, are all great books. White folks and, and black folks and, and everyone else. Um, and so all of that is, I think, helpful. One of the things that frustrates me is particularly in national news media, the coverage is still very whitewashed. Even in analyzing evangelicalism, they're going to the same sources, the same churches, same denominations, same individuals who are pretty much all white. Um, they're analyzing it with a political lens and saying, oh my gosh, like it's some new revelation that white evangelicalism has been political all along. And then in the absence of any sort of racial analysis, typically also in the absence of any sort of gendered analysis as well. And it makes me want to pull out my hair because 
in my view, they're replicating the same errors and the same blind spots that, that we've had at least since the mid 20th century with the rise of neo-evangelicalism so-called. So anyway, all of that <laughs> to lead up to talking about the witness and I'm the founder, I've worked there, I'm the co-host of the podcast, all that stuff. So obviously I'm biased, but I've also tried to build the organization in a way that makes an impact. I've tried to build the organization with an eye toward history and what it's taught us. And so I'm grateful that you gave me the opportunity to bring up the witness because I think it is one of the sources that can help give us an accurate reading of America's religious landscape today. What we're trying to do at The Witness is address the core concerns of Black people from a faith-based Christian perspective. And what I think is powerful and unique about what we're doing is that we're doing it as a collective. So most people know me in relation to The Witness, but we have a team of people working on The Witness, and what we try to do is amplify voices of the Black Christian diaspora. Uh, or the expansive Black Christian tradition, as we call it. So long story short, if you want to hear what's missing in typical analyses of evangelicalism, you go to a source like The Witness, and you can start at thewitnessinc.com to hear those voices. And we're not the only ones. You can go to Jude 3 Project, Black Millennial Cafe, Truth's Table. There's, there's a proliferation of Black Christians nowadays, especially Black Christians who have been in or are in proximity to white Christians, which I think is a big difference. Um, there's been a, a proliferation of organizations who, as we say, we're building our own tables. So I would encourage folks to, to go seek out those outlets and the individuals who are part of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you talked about all of that because, you know, one of the challenges that I find, too, is that we're so fragmented. You know, those of us that are trying to do some social justice related work, um, it's difficult to even find out about. At least yes. I have a hard time. Yes. Uh, yes. And I, I'm looking for things, you know, oftentimes. Yep. I knew about your organization for quite quite several years, but like several others that you mentioned, I, I'm not even aware of. But I right, should absolutely. be. I should be. Um, but. <laughs> well, it, 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 it is a challenge. I'll say that. It's certainly a challenge. And um what I'll also say is my theory, I just switched uh, my mic, so sorry about that. But my theory is this is all about narrative. I mean, not all about, but it's narrative is central to all of this stuff about bridging our divides, about why the divides are there in the first place, et cetera. The forces of regression authoritarianism, retrenchment, however you want to characterize it, have a bad story, but they tell it really well. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. So they Very are frustrating, sad. isn't it? <laughs> it is so frustrating. You can look at, uh, if you go to Christian social issues, the, the, the category on Amazon, for instance, it's almost, the top 10 is almost dominated by voices that I think are really unhelpful. Hmm. Voices that are 
you know, fomenting fear about critical race theory, voices that are uh, making social justice into some sort of anti-gospel endeavor, all of these kinds of things, right? And then you can also look, these things come out daily, you can look at what's, what are the top 10 posts on Facebook. Mm. And typically, six, eight, nine of them are going to be those similar voices, not all Christian, but very not helpful in terms of healing our divides, right? So how does that happen? It's because not only do they tell their message well in terms of multimedia and just always being sort of on the leading edge of, of how to get the message out there, they're also very coordinated in their messaging. They get their folks together, they get their folks in line, and they have a, a party line that they tow, and that is the unified narrative going out. Now, I'm not saying that we have to do that per se. I think part of the the difficulty, but a good difficulty, is making room for multiple voices that don't all agree. And that's the advantage slash disadvantage that we have. It's harder to get people in line when there are multiple perspectives that you're trying to incorporate. Um, But it's also an advantage because that's the way it should be, right? (laughs) I mean, we should be in dynamic tension with one another as we seek to make room for one another. Um, But at the same time, to your point about finding these voices that are helpful, about coordinating messaging, we can and should be doing a lot better job on that. Well, um, separately from this interview, we can work on that together. So uh, (laughs) we'll we'll, we'll get back to that. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) So, So before we get into the new book, can we talk just for a moment about your previous books? I think The Color of Compromise was the first one. Is that Yes, The correct? Color of Compromise was the first one. I actually didn't grab that off the shelf, but I got so much. So I've got a couple of monographs. The, the Color of Compromise was the first book. That was sort of diagnosing what went wrong. It's a historical survey of the American church's complicity and racism. It is not fun, happy reading. <laughs> but it's important it, reading. And people that is, don't know is, that stuff vital. really need to read That's it. That's right. I didn't learn this stuff, even as a Black person, as a Christian, as a seminary student. I didn't learn this stuff until well into my adulthood. And so it is necessary knowledge. Um, it's, it's hard knowledge. And I'll say this proactively. A lot of folks will say two things in critique of the color of compromise. One, they'll say it's a one-sided history. You're only telling the bad stuff. What about the good folks? What about the good Christians? And I say, you know what? It's proportional. There were <laughs> folks who, who, who uh, resisted racism. But as a proportion of Christians, and I'm speaking specifically of white United States Christians um, in in various churches and denominations, as a proportion of those folks, it was a minority. They were few and far between and faced hellish opposition for the the most meager attempts at equity and justice, right? So I'm telling the story as it has been written historically in terms of the emphasis. The second objection people will level is, oh, you're just trying to to make white people feel guilty. I'm not trying to, I'm just presenting you with the information. And if that causes a reaction, then I go to Paul in 2 Corinthians who says, doesn't want to produce a sense of guilt, but a sense of godly grief leading to repentance. So there is a kind of sorrow over this knowledge that should occur because you're an empathetic human being, (laughs) because you're a follower of Jesus Christ who wept over Jerusalem, who was infuriated at injustice. And so if there's no reaction, 
if there's no uh, quote unquote negative reaction, right? Then that's there's a callous wrong. heart, right? <laughs> um, so there should be some reaction, but it's a reaction designed not to make you feel guilty for being white. It's a reaction that I hope is a godly grief about what we're doing to other image bearers that leads us to repentance, which, as we know, is a complete shift in mind and actions and attitudes and behaviors. So that's what we're going for in The Color of Compromise. The second book, which you didn't ask about yet, so I can pause if you want. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. Because I, we, earlier this year, we did a book launch interview for How to Fight Racism, right? Uh, yes. Courageous yes. Christian. Is that, that the second or was it one to be That's right. That's the second one. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about that one. So, so that's this one, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice on sale wherever books are sold. You can go to jamartisby.com for one-stop shopping and uh, find your favorite outlet, jamartisby.com. Now, this book is an answer to the question I get most often. So in, in, in the before times, as our podcast producer Bo says, before the pandemic, in the before times... I used to travel around the country speaking and teaching about racial justice. And whenever I would do that, there's a Q&A section afterwards, usually. And almost every single time, this same question comes up. And that question is this, what do we do? <laughs> That's the same exact question that I had as far yeah. as why I did the How to Heal Our Divides book. That's right. That's right. And, and I think that's part of the solution. It would, yeah. it would fall under the awareness category, right? So, so this whole book is my answer to that question, what do we do? And uh, I, I was actually very satisf uh, dissatisfied with even my answers to that question, uh, because in a typical, say, Q&A format, I would just say whatever came to my mind at that moment about what do we do, right? And typically, I'd read an article or a book or something, had, had thought of something. It was always here and there, never any consistency to it. And I spent my first formative years of my career as a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. So I wasn't a very good teacher, but I did get very good at spotting when something uh, that I was saying was going in one ear and out the other. <laughs> so I saw that expression almost every time I tried to answer that, what do we do question? And here's the value, I think, of my second book, How to Fight Racism. One, it prioritizes the practical. So a lot of people, a lot of people who deal with racial justice will do what I did in my first book, which is diagnose the problem. They'll do it from right, a historical right. perspective, sociological perspective, a psychological yep. perspective, their own experiential perspective. That's all really good and helpful. But then it still leaves us answering the question, okay, I believe you, but so now what do we do? Right? And 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 then some books will address the what do we do problem, but they'll do it in a very small way. You know, it's a couple of bullet points at the end of a chapter or maybe one chapter of an entire book, right? So it's, it's, it's not a very lengthy discussion about it. And then here's the fundamental problem, I think. Even when we address the what do we do question about racial justice, it tends to be quite listy and scattered. Do this, that, the other. Right. And they can all be helpful, but it's hard to keep that together. Yeah. That's why we have something like acronyms to help us remember things and abbreviations and all those things. So what I think is the ultimate value of a book of how to fight racism is not simply that you're going to get practical suggestions in every chapter. It's I give you this framework to help you reorient your whole life to racial justice 
And that framework is called the ARC of Racial Justice. And that's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. Mm-hmm. Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. I think if you have all three of these categories, like the legs of a stool, you'll have a stable foundation on which to build your racial justice efforts. And moreover, you can move beyond the bullet point list. You can beyond, move beyond the to-do list of racial justice and actually have a framework for thinking holistically about what we do about the problem of racism and white supremacy in our society. So that book is also available yeah, wherever yeah, yeah. books are sold. And no, I love that framework. The, you know, the ARC you know, structure, I think, is really important. And, uh, and it really is a good framework. Uh, those are three really um, important elements, <laughs> to, yeah. and, yeah. and with, without any one of them, the other two won't work. So, well, the sneaky part is it's going to catch both liberals and conservatives. How so? So, liberals will emphasize the commitment aspect, which talks about changing policies, changing laws, the systemic aspects of racism, which is all true. And if you've been in white evangelical settings, that's the part that gets underplayed. Hmm. But it catches liberals in the sense of sometimes we do an end around relationships. Hmm. We, think we, 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 we sort of leapfrog over the people aspect of it and say, no, we got to change the system. Yeah, but you change the system through people. Now, I'm not one that says, you know, just preach the gospel, change hearts and minds, and that's going to do it. I'm just going to say, in terms of relationships, A, we need to go out of our way to build bridges because we've gone out of our way to build walls between Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we need to approach these relationships with humility. I'm not saying be a doormat in a toxic relationship. What I am saying is that we've got to treat other people, even the people we vehemently disagree with, um, as if they are bearers of the image of God, which indeed they are which is often not our discourse in public, right? It also catches conservatives, though, too, because conservatives are the ones who are hyping up the relationship aspect. Well, you know what? We just need to get together. Let's have a meal together. Let's swap the pulpit. Let's have a conversation. You know, all of those kinds of things, which, again, are good, but they're not going to do anything about the crisis of mass incarceration, the increasing racial wealth gap, uh, the, um, the outsized proportion of black mothers who die in maternity-related deaths. It's not going to do anything about the systemic issue. So the arc of racial justice catches conservatives because it says, yeah, relationships are important, but we have to go beyond that and, and do something about the laws and the policies and the systems that are creating inequities between entire groups of people. So it catches all of us wherever we are. <laughs> And, and that awareness piece, anybody can get down with, but it, it forces us to move beyond just reading a book or listening to the podcast or whatever it might be and mm-hmm. to take action. Mm-hmm. To me, again, that that's where the rubber hits the road, right? You know, I mean, we can talk and pontificate and do whatever, but until we actually take actions, right, you know, to solve some of these problems, then, you know, it's, it's, it's moot. That's right. So, so. The new book sounds like it's kind of a children's version of the previous book. Is that a good way to fry, for me to think of it? Yes, it's the Young Reader's Edition. Um, that's right there in the title. And uh, it, it is written in a way that it is accessible to kids like fourth through sixth grade. You can go a little bit lower, a little bit higher, of course, but that's kind of the sweet spot there. And um, 
worked with a guy named Josh Mosey on it, who yes, uh, helped yes. me adapt it from the adult book. And so, yeah, that's coming out in January 2022. Yeah. So Josh uh, spoke at one of our children's book conferences that we did. So I was really glad to see that you guys had collaborated on this. Uh, uh, he was great to work with, brought, honestly, um, a lot more background info, typically, you know, in the Christian publishing industry, like a lot of sectors, it's, it's very white and they may or may not have, you know, any sort of personal knowledge around uh, race and racism. Uh, But Josh actually came with a good bit of background knowledge and was very conscientious about it. And I thought helped raise good questions and considerations that say, for instance, um, a white person or just really anybody who didn't have an extensive background in race might have because I'm in it all day, every day. And so it's a little bit hard for me to, to step back and see it from somebody who's got another day job. Um, and so he was very helpful in that sense. And then I'm excited just about the adaptations that we made in the book for kids and just, you know, having learned from the adult ber- version of the book. So some of those you're going to get um, call out sections in here, you know, little just bullet points that, that, that we bring out. Um, I'm excited about the fact that we actually have a glossary in the back Mm. um, where we, you know, sort of briefly on a kid friendly level, define some of the words that we use and we define it in the text as well. Also, there's um, an appendix in the back. Hair came up a lot. Like what to do about hair. So we actually had to pull that out and make it into a whole appendix um, unto itself. And then there are also just like some frequently asked questions. Uh, someone I love is saying hurtful things about other races. Um, someone says something racist to me. What do I do? Uh, others disagree with me, those kinds of things. There's a resource list on books about race uh, that are written for kids. There's some additional articles and there's even a parent's guide uh, to helping your kids fight racism in the back of the book. So this is really designed for adults to read along with kids. You can read this book exactly along with the kids, or you can read the adult version alongside the kids. Um, the one as- the other aspect I'll mention about the structure of this book is it combines elements of both the color of compromise and how to fight racism. Okay. By that, I mean, there's an extensive section in here about history. Mm. So, so you're sort of getting two books in one with this. Mm. So you get a little bit of the diagnosis talking about the history of racism in this country, which sort of sets up the more practical aspects to say, you know, why is there a problem in the first place? What led to this? How did we get here? And then you get into some more of the practical aspects. We also made the chapters shorter. So, you know, each chapter is maybe five, six pages long. So there's a sense of momentum and, and completion as you go throughout the book. Because all told, it's around, you know, it's, it's about 190 pages, which can get overwhelming for young kids. But if you break it up into smaller chunks, you can work through it together. So. That's my spiel about the Very book. Cool. Excited about it. Very cool. So where did the idea come from? How did, how did you? Yeah. I mean, it came from two sources. One, uh, Zondervan folks were like, hey, we should make a kid's book about cool. it. It was like, Good really? Okay. Good for them. Um, 
the other, and, and I'm working with a really great team at Zonder Kids, uh, which is a, a separate division. The other one is, you know, the most frequent question I get, as I said, is what do we do? Probably the second most frequent question is how do I talk to my kids about race? Yeah, yeah. that's so crucial. How do I talk to my kids about race? And again, <laughs> scattershot answers in one year, out the other, all of that stuff. And I'm not a child psychologist or anything like that. So, but I had, like I said, um, my first career, I, I, I joined Teach for America out of college. That's actually how I got down south to the Delta. I grew up in the Midwest, went to Notre Dame in Indiana for college. <laughs> There's no earthly reason I would end up in the Delta on the Arkansas side. Um, but I joined Teach for America, and that's where they placed me. Mm. I've been here basically ever since my whole adult life, except for a few years in Jackson, Mississippi, going to seminary. Um, and, and I started out, like I said, as a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. And then I became the middle school principal, grades five through eight. So my first almost 10 years of, of professional life was as an educator. Oh. And so it was fun to go back to some sure. of those principles, to go back to the classroom mentally and try to say, you know, how do we talk to children and students and young people about race and racism? So um, the idea really arises from that frequently asked question from adults, from parents, guardians, teachers about how, even when to talk about race, how much is too much, how explicit can you get all of those questions. Um, and hopefully this is not an end to the conversation. It is the beginning or the continuation of a conversation. Hopefully it's a conversation starter as well. Mm-hmm. So if there was one thing you'd want kids to take away from the book, what would it be? You have agency. Mm. You can change things. That's what I want kids to know. Um, Baseline is that we have to be, our kids have to be aware of how the world works. Um, There's prudence there. You don't want to necessarily show them pictures of Emmett Till's mutilated face and body you know, at eight years old, uh, if you don't think they can handle that, or if you think it's going to cause more trouble, but you can say there's real hatred out there based on nothing more than skin color or what one person thinks of another person. You can say that because of the way our laws are structured, it's, 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 it's unfair towards certain people. And we can give our kids a sense of that, of the way the real world operates without, I think, making them jaded or cynical. And, and, the, and, and part of that, part of avoiding that is saying, hey, things are not the way they should be, but you can do something about it. That's what I hope they take away from it. That's what I hope parents and guardians and adults can instill in children. And that's what I hope children can believe because this extends to every area of life. If, if children believe they have agency to do something about something about a problem as big and as intractable as racism, then maybe they'll believe they can do something about, um, you know, how hard it is to learn reading or math or Spanish for them, how, um, how to get along in personal relationships, how to do something about climate change. I don't know. 
but it's, it's a principle that is applicable in every area of life. You may not be able to do everything. You won't be able to do everything, but you can do something. And figuring that out is half the battle. Well, there are hope, right? You know, I mean, you and I won't be around here forever. Um, and after we're gone, it's going to be up to them, right? So absolutely, the more we can equip them to... I think, I, think, I think this book is also timely because I'm sure you've been paying attention to the viciousness happening at the local school board level. Yeah, it's crazy. My goodness. Now, obviously, we've seen this historically, right? Um, particularly around desegregation. Uh, I mean, it got ugly. You can look up pictures now. Just Google, you know, desegregation in the 1950s, and you'll see um, angry white mobs hmm. yelling expletives at children, hmm. children who happen to be black because they were going to this historically white school. And so we know that, that, that schools, local schools, are some of the most vigorous sites of racism historically in our country. And we're seeing the same thing now. And most of the backlash now is about critical race theory, which, by the way, is not taught K through 12. No kidding. <laughs> this is a law school it's theory. It's so stupid. The whole thing it's is so stupid. stupid. Again, back to what we were saying earlier, a bad narrative. Really good messaging. Yeah. The yeah. <laughs> really consistent messaging. Um, and it's about things like the 1619 project being taught in schools. And so they're actually passing laws and policies to ban this stuff or to say that, oh, you have to have a counterpoint or another perspective, right? And folks are getting into, oh, and of course, mask mandates and vaccine mandates at school in a pandemic, right? And so you're seeing folks at the local school board level get into shouting mats matches threatening local school board members who are your next door neighbors and you run into them at the, the the grocery store and these are not national politicians who are getting money from big pharma or something these are folks who who really just want to serve their local community and they're getting death threats and things like that so all that to say how to fight racism the young readers edition is really timely because teaching an accurate history of race and racism in our schools is becoming so much more tenuous. Huh. Huh. It's becoming so much more difficult. Well, how much Whether did it, it ever happen in the first place? Exactly. How much did it ever happen? But I then mean, you get this backlash to, to, to the uprisings in 2020 where people are trying to bring attention to these issues. And then you've got these forces of retrenchment saying, no, no, no. Not only do we not want you to talk about it, we're going to pass laws to make sure that our teachers cannot talk about it in the classroom without getting fired or fined or something like that, right? So, so yeah, it wasn't even happening to the extent it needed to happen in the first place. But then when you start getting sort of minimal efforts to take steps in the right direction, uh, you know, folks are trying to pull the rug right from under uh, that effort. Um, so, listen, in 1964, Freedom Summer, they had something called Freedom Schools, which said black kids in the Delta are not getting the education they need. They're not getting food during the summer. And if the, the state isn't going to provide the social safety net, if 
black parents and families don't have the resources to do it because of racism and disinvestment, then we don't have to go through the system. We can go around it in a manner of speaking. So they formed freedom schools to teach students um, democratic literacy, what it means to be a citizen, how to vote, but also to do basic education and to provide food and to instill a sense of pride. And so this little book, as you walk through it with your kids, is your little freedom school. (laughs) I don't know what your local public school is or is not doing. I don't know what they'll be permitted to do in the near future. But if you can't change the system, and I'm not saying stop or stop trying, but you can also go around it. (laughs) We can create parallel systems that, that fill in those gaps that many of our uh, public school systems have when it comes to teaching about race and racism. Mm, wow. Very powerful. So on a lighter note, <laughs> have you got more books coming? Are there anything you could talk about that's uh, on the horizon or is it too early? Yes. Yes. Um, well, one thing I want to talk about is my most frequent writing is done at my newsletter, um, which is on Substack. And okay. so you can subscribe for free and get free content at jamartisby.substack.com. And then there's also a paid subscription version, which is really just there if you like my work and want to support me in doing it. That's what it's really for. But of course, you also get access to some exclusive content, sort of like a backstage pass. Uh, one of the articles I'm sharing this week is the music I listen to when I write or w- when I was studying uh, for the PhD, in case you like to, to listen to music when you're working. And so that's the kind of behind the scenes stuff that you'll get, um, exclusive interviews, things like that, if you want to become uh, a paid subscriber. But go to jamartisby.substack.com. That's where I do most of my writing. Um, I also today <laughs> submitted... Um, three ideas for books to my agent. Oh, <laughs> so I just got, you know, I got, I always have a ton of stuff churning in my brain and, um, you know, hopefully in the near future, by the time folks listen to this, I'll be able to announce, you know, the next book contract or something like that. Nothing concrete yet. So I won't talk about it too much, but yes, I'm plugging along there. And then the last couple I'll mention, I'm contributing to, to several books And two that I want to point out in particular are this book, uh, Count It All Joy, The Ridiculous Paradox of Suffering. That's by John M. Perkins. Oh, wow. If you you haven't heard of John Perkins, he's, for now, uh, a a living legend. He's 91, um, fighting his third bout with cancer. Um, And he grew up in Mississippi. His mother died of malnutrition. Um, while he, while breastfeeding him while he was at that age, uh, his brother was killed by the cops, um, in an unjust, unlawful shooting. He himself, uh, once he became a Christian, he had moved to California, came back to Mississippi. Once he became a Christian, started a lifelong ministry here, lives in West Jackson, Mississippi to this day. But, um, in, uh, late sixties, early seventies, he was arrested by police and beaten and tortured in a rural Mississippi jail. Um, One of the most traumatic events of his life, obviously. But throughout it all, has been a bridge builder, 
a reconciler, all those things started the Christian Community Development Association. Anyway, yeah, yeah. just an incredible human being in a lot of ways. Um, and I got to write the afterword for what this will probably be the last book he writes before he dies. Mm. Um, wow. So it just it just That's felt like being cool. part of history. You know, that you sense. were able to do that. I was so honored and privileged. And then similarly, I got to contribute to this book, The Coming Race Wars, A Cry for Justice from Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter. This is by my dear, dear, dear friend and mentor, uh, Dr. William Bill Pinnell. Bill Pinnell is a remarkable human being. He's 92, I believe, and um, became a Christian in the 40s or 50s, 40s, and uh, uh, through the witness of two white women, Christian women, um, this is back before that kind of thing was very common, um, has worked with all kinds of evangelical institutions, um, and then spent most of his career at Fuller Seminary. He was the first black trustee they had, and then spent close to 40 years as a teacher. They named the Bill Pinnell Center for Black Church Studies after him. And I reached out to him in some of my research for, for the PhD, and he was just so gracious to me, and we, we struck up a friendship. Um, I went, I've been to visit him in Pasadena several times. And this book, The Coming Race Wars, he wrote um, in the wake of the Rodney King beating mm. in the early 90s mm. and right after the uprisings in Los Angeles. And this was a warning to the church and white evangelicals in particular, if we don't change something dramatically and fast, this is going to continue and get worse. And this was, uh, you know, 20 plus years ago. And boy, was he right. Wow. <laughs> so that so um, the publisher, IVP University Press, just reissued this book, okay. um, updated and revised. And I got to do um, an introductory chapter setting the context for this. So I got to do some really um, fascinating research into the, the Rodney King beating and the uprisings afterwards. Some of the writing I'm most proud of. It was some of the most some of the writing that was most informative for me just to prepare for. And then the book itself, uh, the, the man's voice comes through. He's witty. He's sarcastic and acerbic, but he's loving and kind and gracious. And it's just like him. Hmm. Uh, so, hmm. so sitting down and reading this book feels like you're having a conversation with Dr. Bill Pinnell, who is a living legend of um, black evangelicalism and somebody who has kept up relationship with white people through thick and thin, but has never lost a sense of his identity, never lost a sense of solidarity with black people or the black church. So you can pick that one up as well. Wow. Very cool. You're sure involved in a lot of wonderful things, Jamar. It's really great to see. Look, humbled. I'm just absolutely humbled. Um, you know, I make my living off of words, but more than that, it's relationships. And uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, you and I, were not going to be around forever. We got to pass on uh, a, a sense of, you know, responsibility and mission, I would say, to to younger folks. And that is true. And it, it, it saddens me as a historian, as a black person, as a Christian to see really we're living in the very last days 
of the people who lived through the civil rights movement. Yes, yes. Uh, folks like Bill Pinnell and John Perkins and so and, and others like uh, Merle Evers Williams and, and so many more. Um, and we need to take advantage of that. And it doesn't have to be some celebrity civil rights activist. It can be your parents. It can be mentors. It can be friends. Right. I just think we need to glean as much as we can from folks who have lived through some things mm-hmm. and have remained faithful, kept a strong positive witness throughout it all. Uh, We have so much to learn, so much to take up uh, in terms of a mantle and and continuing this journey that it would be, you know, shame on us if we don't just sit at the feet of those who have gone before us to learn from this great cloud of witnesses. Mm -hmm. Well, good for you for, you know, being able to establish some of those relationships that you have and the learning that you've done, you know, by working with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest lessons I've gotten isn't strategy that doesn't focus on some sort of practical aspect. Here's how to get more done in life. I don't say this in any sort of wishy-washy way that glosses over real problems. But what comes through with these men in particular is love. Hmm. And I want to say they've learned how to love well in the sense that they've learned how to keep loving in the midst of constant human failure, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to racism. I mean, honestly, we're in 2021 still fighting for voting rights. Yeah, I know. Which is the same thing they were fighting for in the 1960s, right? Crazy. It's wild. And, 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 to a person, everyone who I know who was active in the civil rights movement, who's still living, I've gotten to talk to, they've said that now feels like then That's, or worse. I, wow. I, I believe that. You know, I can see yeah. there's so many unfortunate parallels. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and so what I'm learning from, from these older folks is, you know, hopeful persistence. How do you keep going in the face of these setbacks? And also how you love your enemies which is not, you know, forgetting what they've done or being okay with injustice. It's a much more humble acknowledgement that some people are never going to get it, but I'm never going to dehumanize them. And I'm always going to leave the light on, so to speak, for if they come to repentance, you know? So it's just a, you can go on and on, but, but we got a lot to learn from folks. We don't know yeah. it all, and we're stupid to try to start from scratch. Really, really. Well, Jamar, thank you so much for uh, joining us today to talk about all these really important issues and you know your wonderful work. Um, really appreciate that. Oh, I love our conversations. I really appreciate you letting me talk about the latest book, How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition, A Guide to Standing Up for Racial Justice. If you want to talk to the kids in your life, they don't have to be your own children, just any young people in your life about racism and really what to do about it and that they have agency to change the world, then this book I think will be helpful. It's uh, available now for pre-order wherever books are sold, and it will be on sale January 2022. So I uh, appreciate you letting me talk about that. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Really glad that we had the opportunity to do that and uh, look forward to, you know, collaborating on other fronts as well. Sounds good. Great to talk to you. All right. Thanks so much, Jamar.